Well, good morning, Cross Point. How are we this morning? Good, good. A few of us are alive. The rest of us, maybe this word will make you alive. And so that's our prayer today. Uh, there's a pastor, his name is Ray Ortland, whom I greatly admire. And he says this in quotation that I want us to think on and, and, and pray on as we approach God's word this morning. He says, the real Jesus loves us enough to accept us freely and confront us honestly. The real Jesus loves us enough to accept us freely and to confront us honestly. The grace of God today is that which will confront us. In this word, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's very confrontational. It's very directed in a singular way. And Jesus is saying beyond expectation, beyond exception, that this is the way that you must go. And he confronts every other way that we want to walk. While at the same time, he comforts us. And he says, hey, let me show you that way. Let me take you that way. Let me walk with you that way. So let's pray and allow that, that truth to grip us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you don't leave us isolated and on our own, but that, God, you care more about us truly being in love with you than a facade, than us just trying to fake things this morning. You care more with us truly following you, God, than pretending about that. And so you're willing to confront us. God, I pray that we would allow ourselves to be confronted right now. God, I pray that our defenses would be dropped and our hearts would be laid bare. And God, it's in mind that you confront us for the purpose of comforting us that can allow us to drop our defenses and open our hearts to you, God, because we know that you won't wound us, that we won't heal. But the wounds that are caused, Father, are wounds that need to take place because surgery has to happen. And we need to come under the knife of the good doctor and allow that work to be done in our hearts. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen, amen. Bob Dylan, the great theologian, wrote a song called Trouble. It's not fought long after I was born. And the lyrics go like this. Trouble in the city, trouble in the farm. You got your rabbit's foot, you got your good luck charm. But they can't help you none when there's trouble. Trouble, 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 nothing but trouble. Trouble in the water, trouble in the air. Go all the way to the other side of the world and you'll find trouble there. Revolution even ain't no solution for trouble. Drought and starvation, packaging of the soul, persecution, execution, governments out of control. You can see the writing on the wall inviting trouble. Put your ear to the train tracks, put your ear to the ground. You ever feel like you've never been alone when even there's nobody else around? Since the beginning of the universe, man's been cursed by trouble. 
nightclubs of the brokenhearted, stadiums of the damned, legislature perverted nature, doors that are rudely slammed. Look into infinity, all you see is trouble. He does sound like a theologian, doesn't he? It's amazing how the echoes of the world often reveal the heart of the Bible. And the heart of the Bible says that there's trouble. There's a unified theme of the Bible that says there's trouble. In fact, all of biblical Christianity makes this confession. And the confession is not just that trouble is out there, but that trouble's right in here. It's not just the heart of biblical Christianity. It is the heart of every biblical Christian. Unless you come to a point in realizing that the trouble arises from yourself, you'll never find the way to go. Unless you come to a point in realizing that you yourself play a part in a very big part in the trouble that's caused not just around you but in you, then you'll never find the way. Because the requirement of every biblical Christian is to realize they need someone greater than themselves to get them out of the mess that they've caused because of their sin. And that's the promise that Jesus offers this morning to troubled hearts. Believe in God, says Jesus, and believe in me. Those are revolutionary words, and when they were given to the disciples, they were no doubt given to bring them comfort, but also to confront their sensibilities, to confront what they knew in the moment, what they thought they knew but they didn't know, and how the cure for troubled hearts is a belief in God that rests on the person, Jesus Christ. Think about the disciples for a moment with me, and it doesn't take a stretch of imagination to think through what they're going through right now. In context, chapter 13, you see Jesus saying to the disciples, where I'm going, you can't come with me. So these disciples have left everything to follow after Jesus. They've left their livelihoods. This was a day when when businesses and professions were passed down from generation to generation. So if your dad was a fisherman, you were carrying on the line of business for the fishermen. You were continuing the industry in your family and it was going to be handed down and it was a means of inheritance that you would have the business and that your family would have the business and that the family, the generation of family lines would continue to walk in that. These disciples stepped out of that to follow Jesus because he was the Messiah. And in that time, the Messiah was the one who was going to come to set the Jews free from their bondage and oppression, which was happening in Rome. They were, there was taxation without representation. There was all the things that we think about and worse. There was hurt that happened on behalf of the Roman government on the Jewish people. And it was almost like the Israelites in captivity and in bondage in Egypt. And one like Moses would come to set them free. And they were going to follow him. And they would have a place in the king's court. Maybe one will be the attorney general. Maybe one will be the chief of staff. Maybe one will be the secretary of state. And if they hang close to the Messiah, then the Messiah would produce for them. 
And there would be a physical kingdom, one like David would rule over the physical world. But Jesus comes not for just the troubles of the circumstances in the times, but he promises to be the Messiah of our hearts, to set us free from the inside out. And the the disciples didn't know this at that time. They didn't didn't know that Jesus was going to die for them. Even though he'd been telling them he was going to die for them, they couldn't figure that out. They couldn't figure out that where Jesus was going, they couldn't come with him. And so they were filled with sadness. Sadness because of the hurt that was going to take place knowing their beloved rabbi was going to leave them. They were filled with shame and guilt because Jesus had just confronted two things that were significantly going to happen within the disciples themselves. Number one, Judas would betray him. And number two, he predicts Peter's denial. Shame and guilt because of their sin and the sins of others. Fear. What's going to happen? How is this all going to come about? It's going to happen when Jesus leaves. Anger. Frustrated because God is going to do something this way and not the way that I anticipate it, not the way that I want him to. Those troubles sound familiar to you? Sadness. Brokenness. Shame, guilt. You could write your story into the Bible right here because it's the story of humanity's troubled hearts aren't just in the disciples, but it's in us today. And being honest with ourselves, saying, I come carrying those troubles. And those troubles are deep inside. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And the cure for troubled hearts, Jesus says, is believe in God. And believe also in me. That's the cure for troubled hearts. Now you've all heard it. You've all heard somebody say, just believe in God and everything's going to be okay. Like you could take the believe pill and everything's going to wipe away. And all your circumstances are going to go away like a genie in the bottle. You get three wishes and here they go. Don't use them all. Okay. Keep on believing. Keep on moving. There's this religious talk that we do, this religiosity that says, believe in God, believe in God. I assure you, Jesus is not giving you any religiosity when he says, believe in God, believe also in me. He's asking you to put your faith in something that's concrete, something that's real, something that will never fade, something that will never fail you. Believe in God. You all have people in your life that go through troubled circumstances and trials. And the interesting thing about it is that they're the ones that put themselves in that circumstance. Their own decision. It's their own sin. And if you're like me, you've got a friend or family member and you can see it coming better than they can. Right? And at the end of the day, the, the problem is not on the outside of them. The problem is on the inside of them. And, 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 and you know that because they're looking for something externally to fix what's internal. And so they say maybe there's a financial problem. If the finances would just be right, then this would be okay. And they have a money management issue. Maybe they just look to relationships for fulfillment. And so if they would just find the right relationships in this way, then that would become better for them. 
Or you could fill in the blank for whoever it is, and chances are we're, we're not even just talking about somebody else, we're talking about ourselves. But the problem isn't circumstantial, the problem is the heart, and Jesus offers us the cure for the heart, which is a deep belief in him. We have a God problem, not a circumstantial problem. We need God. Jesus is saying that. You need God. And he links who God is to himself. This is revolutionary for the disciples. It's revolutionary because Jesus is saying everything that you've believed about God. And their belief about God runs deep through the Old Testament. Through the prophets. Through the Mosaic law, excuse me. Through the, through the way of life that they've sought to emulate and, and follow, given from generation to generation in terms of their, the Old Testament faith. But Jesus is saying, everything that you've believed about God, now transfer it to this physical reality of a person that's right before them. Believe about God. Believe this in me. The God of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, this is the one that's standing before you. If you believe that to be true about God, you have to believe it to be true about me. The two go hand in hand. If you believe in God, you'll believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you'll believe in God. And so everything there is hanging on the physical reality of Jesus and they don't know what's going to happen. Now, we see it on the other side of things, but could you imagine seeing it before the death, burial, and resurrection and then believing that this is the Messiah and that the Messiah is God himself? That's what Jesus wants to get through to the disciples. Believe in me. That's what he wants to get through to us. Believe in me. I am God. We all have doubts, don't we? Doubts in life, I think, can be a good thing. Doubts about God, doubts about our direction, of where God's taking us, those things can be a good thing. They're natural. They should be embraced. But they should be embraced with faith. Because if your doubts are not embraced by faith, here's what's going to happen. The doubts will overtake your faith. Alistair Begg, a pastor and preacher, author says, we do not allow our doubts to overturn our faith, but we allow our faith to overturn our doubts. That's the critical moment for every Christian, is that when those doubts come, how do you handle those doubts with faith? And is your faith, your belief in God strong enough to where those doubts don't overturn you or capsize you like a boat in the ocean and blow you to and fro and then you're flipped around and you're underwater and there's nothing you can do because your doubts swallow you? Alistair Begg says, no, the reverse is true that our doubts are anchored by faith and our faith is deeply rooted in a belief in God that that overturns all of our doubts because doubts will come but what will happen when those doubts come will they blow you to and fro and 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 will they capsize you or will your faith capsize your doubts and hold them captive to a belief in who God is and what he has accomplished 
It's an amazing thing to think that Jesus is telling his disciples, do not be troubled because of what they're going through. And they're going through a lot. But in reality, it's the disciples that should be saying this to Jesus because Jesus is getting ready to walk to the criminal's cross. He's the one that's getting ready to walk the hard path and do the hard things that nobody else can do. And I want us to spend the remaining amount of time in asking just two questions. And the two questions I don't even have to ask because Thomas asked them for us. He always does. Thomas is the doubter, and so let your doubts be made known with Thomas when he says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Those are very good questions that Thomas asks, and there are uh, are questions that probably all the disciples were asking in that situation, and we would ask in the same way. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and if we don't know where you're going, how in the world are we going to know the way to get there? And so in verses 1 through 4, we see, where are you going, Jesus? Where are you going? In in verses 5 through 7, How do we then get there? And Jesus explains it in this passage. He says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So Jesus has a place in mind of where he's going. And the place in mind already exists at the Father's house. So he's going to the Father's house. And what is he going to do in the Father's house? Well, he's going to prepare a place for us. So there's a place that already exists, and it's a a place that's spacious and welcoming and inviting. But it's only inviting to Jesus. It's only a place for him right now. And Jesus is saying that I have to go there so that you can can go too so that you can come with me because otherwise this place is uninhabitable for you you cannot be there because you can't be in the presence of the father and in the glory of heaven unless I go there first and he's saying the place that I go you cannot follow me because the road that he's going is the road that only Jesus can go and that's the road to forgiveness of our sins It's to the criminal's cross where he will be hung on a tree. A tree which, by the way, he created. Think about how how shameful that that is. To be hung on your own tree with nails that would would be used that God created in every creative brilliance of God. It would be used against him. That the crown of thorns that pierces his head would be the king's crown. That's where he was going. He was going to the king's cross for you and for me and for his disciples. It was a place where we could not go because, listen, the problem of the heart is one that can only be cured by Christ paying the penalty for our sin. That leads to salvation. That's the only one that could go that way for us. 
That's what Christianity requires for us to believe, that if we are going to have access to the Father, we have to have access through His Son. And He goes and prepares this place for us. And you think about heaven, and heaven is a place that Jesus Christ has prepared. And the thing about heaven, when we read the Bible, is we don't get a lot of description about what heaven is like. There is some description, it's really powerful descriptions about what heaven is like. But rather than the Bible telling us mostly what heaven is like, the Bible tells us what's there. Not just what's there, but who's there. And who's there is Jesus. Jesus is going to prepare a place for us because he is saying that that's where he's going to be and that's where we're going to be because we belong to him. And as long as we're with Jesus, that's going to be the best place where we could ever be because that's where I want to be, right next to him. That's where the disciples wanted to be. In fact, Jesus is saying, the reason why I'm leaving you temporarily, which it is temporary, this world is temporary, Our life and our death is temporary here on earth is because I'm going to make for you a place that's eternal. A place where you'll always be with me. A place that's forever. And it's the Father's house where God the Son resides. And you can bank your life on the fact that if He goes to prepare the place for you, He's going to come back and get you. If he goes to prepare the place for you, he's not going to leave you. He's not going to leave you stranded. He's going for you, so he's going to come back for you. Speaking of the second advent of Christ, he is going to return to this world, and the reason why he's going to return to this world is to come and get you. Yeah, it's going to show everybody how powerful and amazing he is. Yeah, he's going to judge the living and the dead, but he's coming to bring you with him. He's coming to set the captives free. He's coming so that you can be eternally with God the Father, through God the Son, whom He has sent. And that this relationship isn't one of sadness, or fear, or depression, or anxiety. If you struggle with those things, welcome to the club, by the way. It won't be that way in heaven. (laughs) Can I get an amen for that? That's good news right there. Amen? And Jesus offers us His perfect peace through his presence we imagine heaven to be a place where our loved ones will be those who know Jesus that one day we'll meet again and and it will be that place and maybe it's this place of eternal golf outings or maybe it's this place of a of a constant vacation you 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 can can give every idea of heaven and what's good on earth for you and you could try to translate into heaven but it will be so out of fantasy that you can't imagine how fantastic the reality of heaven is because of one thing and that one thing is one person and that one person is Jesus and here's what my friend who's a pastor his name's Greg Heinz says he says if you're not enamored with Jesus now If you don't love and treasure him now, well then, heaven is not the place where you'll want to spend the rest of the endless eons of the future, because what gets perfected in heaven is not our ability and opportunity to enjoy temporary things. 
What gets perfected in heaven is our ability and opportunity to enjoy deep and personal intimacy with Jesus Christ. So if you're looking for the temporal in heaven, you're not looking deep enough. If you're looking for the, the temporal to satisfy you, and maybe you'll be able to enjoy endless buffets and, and not have the calorie count, right? That sounds good, doesn't it? No, that's a temporal thing that is not the ultimate aim of what's going to be perfected in heaven. What's going to be perfected in heaven is this God problem that we have. And this God problem that we have is going to be completely and totally resolved for all eternity. Amen? And this is what's going to be perfected in heaven. And so I hope you're asking the next question. How do I get there? Jesus, how do I get there? Jesus says right before the question is asked, if you know me, you know how to get there. And Thomas is like, uh, uh, Jesus, we still don't know how to get there. I, I don't know how to get there. And Jesus is saying, no, you really do. If you know me, you know how to get there. Here's why. He says, I am the way. There it is. Our I am statement. Jesus declaring who he is. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to unpack each three of those statements that Jesus makes about himself. Number one, I am the way. Jesus doesn't say, here's how you go and find me. You you take a right on Mills, you take a left on Colonial, look for the signs of I-4, then get on I-4. That's not, that's not the way to go. One, you know that I, Jesus would never send us on I-4 to go and find him. <laughs> and two, it's not a place within our physical ability to reason about it. You can't find the place that Jesus is going with a Hubble telescope. You can't find the place on a map. It doesn't compute with us on our idea of longitude and latitude. The place that Jesus is going is a place that is real, but it's a place that only he can go and only he can take us. He doesn't simply point us to the way to go and and tell us to now find the way on our own. He takes us there because he is the way and he's walked the path first for us. He's been the only one that could walk the path. You couldn't walk the path to the cross. He walked the path to the cross. If you try to make the way on your own, then you're disgracing God. Because he's the way. He's the one that offers forgiveness for your sins. Don't mock him. Don't malign him. Go through him. Don't try to do it by your own legalistic self-righteousness or your obedience to the law. He is the only way to go. And if you believe in him, he takes you there. Now, if you're a failure, if you're a mess up like me, (laughs) this is good news. Because I couldn't get there on my own. There's a lot of things I can't do on my own. But thank God for Jesus. This is one thing that I don't have to do on my own because he has already done for me. And he says everything that I have to do from this moment on, he's going to be with me as I do these things. Even our life now, he offers us the presence of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in a way that honors him and glorifies him. So that we can walk in obedience to the law in such a way that brings glory to God and joy in our hearts. He is the way. He is the way for those things. And he is the way to heaven. He is the ticket. 
you don't have the ticket, you're not going. And if you don't have the ticket to heaven, well, then you are going in a direction on your own, and it's the way to hell. That's the only other way. That's why Jesus doesn't here qualify this and say, oh, this world religion, except for this world religion, or this, except for this w- way of thought or belief system. No, no, no. Very, very specific. And most people today would call him a bigot for this. And that's why when we say it, they call us bigots for it. Jesus is the only way. Remember I said that Jesus loves you enough to confront you, but also to comfort you? If this was not true, then Jesus wouldn't say it. But because Jesus loves us, he says it. Because he loves us and wants us to be with him, he says it. He says it so that we would believe in him. He loves us enough to tell us the truth, and he is the way. And he doesn't care who he offends or whose sensibility he knocks out of alignment. He wants us to know the truth, even if it cuts, even if it confronts, even if it hurts. That's why the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing joint and marrow. And that's why the word of God also heals those whom it confronts. He is the way. He's the truth. This is not subjective truth. This isn't what your idea of truth is or what your idea of truth is. Or if this is your idea of truth, no, no. This is objective reality. There is one truth and God, who is the author of all truth, is the one who determines truth. And what he has determined to be true, he has revealed to us through his word. And what he has revealed to us through his word is further revealed to us through his son, Jesus Christ. He is the truth. You're looking at truth in the face when you see Jesus. That's why Jesus says that, that's why Paul says in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see God, you look at God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of who God the Father is. You want to see God the Father? Look at God the Father in the face of God's perfect Son, Jesus Christ. He is the truth. So, take what you know to be true and come under this. Come under this. Subject it to this truth and allow this to be your governing authority. And let me tell you very plainly and clearly that if you don't, you're walking in falsehood. And the reason why God tells you that is because he loves you and he wants you to be comforted by the cross. It's not because he hates you. It's not because he wants you to be called a bigot. It's not because he wants you to, to be some kind of prideful, arrogant jerk. No. It's because he wants you to be humbled. Humbled by his truth. And walk as a humble people that don't deserve anything that God has given us. But freely, freely walk in it and live in it. And that's why Jesus says, I am the life. I am the life. When Jesus says he's the life, which happens to be a statement that's repeated within the I am statements, he offers for us reality. Because everything else is pretense. You know why we're so addicted to Facebook? Because we open Facebook and we see so-and-so's marriage and we say, man, I wish I had a marriage like that. 
That's life. Or we see so-and-so's kids and we wish, man, I wish my kids were like that. Or we see so-and-so's travels and we say, man, I wish I was over there where they're at. I wish I was here where they're at. and, and, And we could look at all these things and it's just like coveting times 20, not just our neighbors, but everybody in the world, however many friends that you have. And they're trying to tell you, and we don't intentionally do this, but we're trying to say, we're putting on our best face forward and we're saying, be like me, look how amazing I am. When in reality, you don't know the stuff that's going on between the lines. You don't know the difficulties of those people's lives. And here you are wanting that. No, Jesus offers us life by not saying, here you go, here's your marriage, here's your best life now. He doesn't do that. He says, I am your best life now. I am. Live me. And if you live me, then you will live a life of purpose, a life that's real. Jesus is eternal. And he's saying that life will not just be lived for the here and now. You don't just got to take it all in in this world and try to suck up as much as you can because you don't want to miss anything. I'm telling you, friends, if you have Jesus, there is nothing you will ever miss in this life if you have Jesus Christ. means that if you wanted to visit that place or if you wanted to visit that place or if you want to do this with that person, nothing will be missed as long as you have Christ because He's the one that matters most. So you don't need to align your lives around these momentary, minimal things that are, that are transient, that are temporary. But you align your life around what that which is eternal and your life is lived according to that pur- purpose. Because if he is the way and the truth and the life, then what necessarily follows that is that you will live for him. And those whom you love, the best way to love them is to show them he's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. To align your schedules around that. To align your heart around that. To align your activity around that. And some of us think, oh, if I do that one, I won't have fun. I won't have a good time. Oh, yes, you will. You will have a blast. I promise you that. You know when I feel the most guilty is when I'm not doing that, is when I'm not walking in the path that Jesus Christ has given to me as a minister of reconciliation. And sure, there are things that you sacrifice, but you sacrifice them for a greater joy. And the greater joy is that you're not going to miss out on anything here in this world if you live for Jesus. There's no cost Even though we think it's costly. It's costly according to other people. Oh man, you've chosen this lifestyle. You can't do this, you can't do that. Jesus is not a cosmic killjoy. Jesus gives us joy like we've never tasted or seen of it before. It's like C.S. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. It's not that our pleasures are too weak, or too strong, I mean. It's that our pleasures are too weak. And to find joy in Jesus means that our life is lived for him. John 1.14 is, I think, a wonderful statement that John makes telling you about what all of his book is going to be about, what this whole gospel of John is going to be about. And here's what it is. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that's life. To see the glory 
of God, through the word of God, and to have it real, and to have it something that we could put our feet on, and to have something that we could walk with on a day-to-day basis, and to have that word which is flesh, which is God incarnate through his son, Jesus Christ, and to know that he is with us. And so he says, believe in me. Believe in me means that our whole lives now align around this God who is Jesus, who promises us a life that we would never had unless he gave it to us. It's a life you don't deserve, but it's a life that he freely gives because you are his sons and daughters. And he loves you. Tim Keller says, he says that you were so bad that Jesus had to die for you. While at the same time, you were so dearly loved that he gladly died for you. See, that's the confrontation and the comfort of the cross. Again, Ray Ortland says, the real Jesus loves us enough to accept us freely and to confront us honestly. I want to finish with this application. And the application is asking two questions that I'm asking the Spirit of God to reveal to you. Number one, where do you need to be confronted? Where does the rubber meet the road for you when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life? What is not aligned in your life in that direction? Let me ask you the question, do you allow God to even confront you Or do you, like a kid, put your hands over your ears and say, la, 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 I'm not listening. Because everything that's inside of you hurts so bad that you want to pretend it doesn't even exist. See, last week was Mother's Day. And um, we went after church out to lunch and I told Carrie on Mother's Day, which she she, uh, appreciated that she got to pick where we could go for uh, lunch and so my wife normally does not like to pick uh, on her own and so when she picks especially on Mother's Day it's something that we should do now we were on our way down to Shake Shack she's a cheap date um, for Mother's Day and so we went down to Shake Shack and you know I, I always can cause these problems and so we're driving there and I see Chewies on there and I'm like hey there's Chewies <laughs> and um, Adeline reminds me daddy it's Mother's Day um, and so, uh, Lily also hears about Chewies and Lily's like, Oh, Chewies. And I say, no, no, Lily, we're going to Shake Shack and start talking about what we're going to get at Shake Shack. And Lily's got, you know, nachos in her mind. And so she's thinking about Chewies. Chewies is really good, by the way. May even go there after church today. Um, so, uh, she wants to, to go to Chewy's at this point, and, 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 and she realizes, no, no, we're not going to Chewy's. And so she does what every good six-year-old does when they don't get their way, and she holds our, us all hostage for a little while with her uh, first-degree temper tantrum. And so I say to Lily, Lily, Mommy and Kim and Adeline are going to go eat Shake, shake Shack, and, and you and me, we're going to stay in the car while they go and have a meal on Mother's Day. Thanks, babe. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. It was my fault to begin with. But Lily took, Lily is just like, you know, she reveals my sin. I'll tell you that much. So 
I'm in the car with Lily, and, and she's having her, her first-degree temper tantrum, and she says, in the middle of it, she, she says, Daddy, Daddy, I'm going to keep crying until I get what I want. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. She says, Daddy, which means basically, Daddy, take me to Chewy's. Or she says, you know, it, it, she, 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 she begins to... Uh, say, do something to make me happy, which means get me my own milkshake or something like that. Because we got three kids and we just share. So she wants something special. And I'm not going to reward her bad behavior. And so in the middle of this time together, I say, Lily, we need to talk. And oh my goodness, like she would rather just me spank her then. She would rather have five spankings than one good talking to. Because when we talk, I, I try to get to the deep issues that are at play. Lily, Lily, you're trying to make Mother's Day Lily Day. And that's not good. Because this whole world doesn't revolve around you. And if this whole world revolves around you, Lily, you're still not going to be happy. And so Daddy's preaching sermon number two on Mother's Day to Lily. And Lily's doing this thing. She doesn't want to hear it. But ultimately, if she doesn't hear it, then she's going to be a problem to herself. She's going to be a problem to others. And it's not just Lily, because we're all just grown-up six-year-olds. Me, myself included. And if we're unwilling to hear God's correction, then we're not His children. Because we don't understand that God loves us enough to correct us so that we would walk in the abundant life. And as He corrects us, He also comforts us. And he says, I'm going to help you every step of the way. And that this life that you're seeking to live in and of your own strength, that you think is going to make you happy, is just going to lead in a train wreck. And so we're going to avoid that. And the way we're going to avoid that is I offer you the cross to cure your heart. Not to make everything better, not to make you happy temporarily, but to make you happy for all eternity to make you happy in Jesus all the days of your life and it will be never ending. Try to grasp that for a moment. And that intimacy with Jesus will be perfect. It will be abiding. And there will be nothing that will separate that intimacy that you have with Jesus. Everything that separates that intimacy right now between you and God will be gone. There will be no barrier to your love for Christ and your God problem is now the God's solution. And the God's solution is Jesus, who makes all things new. I hope that's your comfort. Where do you need to be comforted today? Allow the ministry of God's Spirit to knit your heart to God. Thomas Akempis says, Follow thou me. I am the way the truth and the life without the way there is no going without the truth there is no knowing without the life there is no living I am the way which thou must follow the truth which thou must believe the life which thou must hope I am the inviolable way the infallible truth the never-ending life I am the straightest way the sovereign truth life true life blessed Life uncreated. Let Jesus take you in right now and show you the comfort 
of the cross. Let's worship. God, thank you that this morning we have the cross that confronts us and the purpose of the cross in confronting us is that you might comfort us. And you know it for every person where they need both of those things, just as you know it for me. And God, I ask that we don't allow this just to happen on Sunday, but we allow your cross to show us the life that we are meant to live through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that abundant life each and every day by the power of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.